I think I was just born with a certain desire to do stuff, you know, just like an engineer, engineer brain. And you can't help but try to make things better each time you do them again, like money and finance and your physical health and everything. It's like everything has to be optimized just because it's annoying to see your own inefficiency. So it's naturally, it's logical to keep making stuff better if you can. Hey, podcast listener, even if you are alone in your entrepreneurial journey, know that today, right now in your earbuds, you are joined by thousands of entrepreneurs from all around the globe seeking to grow better, more profitable, location-independent businesses. If you'd like to learn more about what we do and download our entire back catalog, check out tropicalmba.com. Ian, were you surprised at all when today's guest said that, yes, he would come and speak with us for the podcast? Yeah, he doesn't do a lot of interviews. And when he does, I think that some waves are created. I guess he did one recently in The New Yorker, and some waves were created. So yeah, I was a little bit surprised. Luckily, he said yes, and we got to talk about his profile on The New Yorker and everything else going on in his life and business. Very cool. So today's guest is Mr. Money Mustache. He is really one of Ian and I's favorite financial bloggers. In fact, Ian, you're like one of the original gangster mustachians. I feel like I've been reading that blog since almost day one. Not only is the blog funny and smart and really insightful, the topic is not only financial management, but really it's about early retirement and time freedom. A specific strategy for approaching that, and I think that part of our attraction is that Mr. Money Mustache, whose name's Pete, by the way, and he's a very nice guy, is really attacking the same problem that we're attacking here on the show every week, but just from a different and unique angle. And for me, that fundamental problem is how do we get more freedom and choice in our lives? So in this interview, we're going to talk about Pete's approach, how he retired early, how he does it with a family, spends very little money each year, lives like a king. And also we're going to talk at the top of the interview about this New Yorker profile that he did and the kind of impact that that had on him and his community. Yeah, it's pretty interesting. And I don't think the New Yorker is going to be calling us anytime soon. (laughs) So we start this interview by asking Mr. Money Mustache about the profile that the New Yorker recently did of him. Well, first of all, it was kind of bullshit the way the article came out when it, in the way it described my personal life. But the way it got started was that this guy, Nick Palmgarden from The New Yorker, just wrote me an email from the blog's contact form and said, hey, I know there's been lots of interviews about you and you don't really do them too much anymore, but I think we can make a better one. And I wrote back and said, yeah, well, New Yorker is great. Even my parents read that. So then we planned it for a while. And then he actually came out here to Colorado and hung out for about three or four days. And I just took him on like a little lifestyle tour. Mostly we were talking. He wasn't like with my family because my family doesn't like having visitors related to the blog too much. So we're just going out on hikes and going to pubs and talking about philosophy and life. So the part that I refer to as bullshit is he kind of inferred this dictator penny pincher personality out of me, which I don't know where he got. You know, he's like, it's kind of like living with a benevolent dictator and he optimizes everything, which is true. But, you know, he told this story about me like 
supposedly not letting my son go to these Magic the Gathering nights and the details were all wrong. Like, I was just a little bit offended and some of my friends were a little bit offended by stuff that was written in there. On your behalf, they were offended for you? Well, for them too. Like, it has the story has me saying something kind of mean about one of my neighbor's kids too, which I didn't say. And I've seen you doing a little bit of damage control there, Pete, like on your forum. and Yeah, I'm doing it right now. Every time that article comes up, I say, I'm happy to be in the New Yorker. Too bad they didn't get our family life right. Because my big goal with that interview was like, show how relaxed and luxurious it is once you're retired. Like we don't think about money. We behave as if everything's free, except it comes with maybe like an environmental cost. That's why we don't fly on first class seats all the time and stuff. The stress of money is gone when you have enough money. And that's the part I feel the story missed. You know, who cares if I look like a weenie in the article? That's fine. But I didn't want it to negatively advertise the idea of financial independence to people as something where you're deprived and have to be penny-pinching, because it's the opposite of that. It's like this feeling of ridiculous abundance. It did seem like he needed to push you into the character corner a little bit. He did call you buff in a ropey way, though. I don't even know what that means. <laughs> but congrats on that. Oh, yeah, right. The mustache and lifestyle does have physical benefits. At least he wasn't able to inaccurately portray me as a super pasty, you know, fat man who never leaves the house. How did that message go over to a more mainstream audience? Were people interested in the ideas put across? Definitely. I noticed more people have been visiting the blog. The stats have gone up. And I've been getting a lot of emails from people saying they heard about it from The New Yorker. So that was cool. There was even a pretty dramatic one where this pretty high-scale guy in the film industry said that he's changed his life significantly already from reading this stuff. So that sounded pretty cool to me. That's the whole goal is high-income people realizing there's something other to do with your money than just finding a way to spend all of it. Pete, can you give us a little bit about the Genesis story? You were kind of writing these thoughts down and getting feedback from a family member that encouraged you to publish them. Is that true? Kind of, yeah. I've always kind of noticed inefficiencies a bit more than normal people, and they've bugged me more. I'm like, why is this person driving this ridiculous truck when they don't even have a farm and stuff like that? And I would just make little commentaries and write about them, sometimes just in like Facebook or whatever, or my personal emails to my family. So I think it's kind of a combination of my dad and my wife, now known as Miss is money mustache who said well why don't you just put a blog out there with this stuff because you like writing anyway and i just casually started and then the positive feedback of people reading it saying yeah that's pretty funny that's what kept me going and still keeps me going to this day i just really like typing some shit into the computer and then hearing back from people what was the thing that put this whole philosophy into your head in the first place? Was it from childhood? or I think we both enjoyed a blog called Early Retirement Extreme. Was that part of the genesis as well? No, that was part of a research project. Like I started writing my stuff and I had about 25 articles written just in a document, like a Google document, not on the web. And then I looked up the words early retirement frugality to see if anybody else had done this. And then Jacob's blog, Early Retirement Extreme, was the first one that came up. And I was like, oh, shit, this guy's already done what I was going to do. Now I can't do it. So I read his entire blog, like over a period of several weeks, like hundreds of articles that he had built up over several years. And I thought, this is great work. And it's really popular. He's made it really popular. But I still felt like I had some stuff to say, or at least say things in a different way than he had. So I went ahead with my blog still. I don't think I fully answered your question, though. You said, like, how did this start when I was younger? And the answer is, I think I was just born with a certain 
certain desire to do stuff, you know, just like an engineer, engineer brain. And you can't help but try to make things better each time you do them again, like money and finance and your physical health and everything. It's like everything has to be optimized just because it's annoying to see your own inefficiency. So it's naturally, it's logical to keep making stuff better if you can. Do you think this idea about inefficiency and whatnot is kind of lost on this current generation? Because it seems like it was pretty prevalent in previous generations. Right. Well, it might have been a couple of factors. Number one, there was a shortage of material goods long ago, like a century ago and more. And then especially in the Great Depression, there was a period of greater shortage. And then also, I feel like since the 70s, maybe our marketing machine has stepped up and become more sophisticated and it's been able to induce desires in people without them realizing where it's coming from, because there's a lot of pretty advanced psychology going into the idea of advertising, and people don't question it. They're born with it. People watch TV as kids, and then suddenly these desires are planted in their heads, and they think, I really want this thing. I need this thing in order to be a better person. And then suddenly other people have these things, and you're like, well, it would be weird for me to drive like a little Kia Spectre from 2006 when my coworker has have like 2016 F-150 Ford trucks. It's all human nature working against us if you don't understand your own weaknesses. It might be interesting to kind of set a baseline because let's assume that the listener, although Ian has been flying the mustachian flag for years on the show, just to take a step back and talk about like what an ardent mustachian, how they might conduct their life. Hmm. Well, would you say more ardent than me? Or should I just use myself as an example? Or maybe we should compare me and Ian. That would be interesting. <laughs> Let's start with you. Let's start with the original mustachian. Well, it's different now than when I was younger because I've stopped having to optimize for money anymore. So I consciously waste more and give away a lot more than I would before. But it still doesn't add up to a huge amount because I try not to do anything that's like deliberately super wasteful. So the main things that are weird about me or unusual is that I don't usually use a car for anything, even though I do have a car and a van just in case. Most people take about four trips with their car every day. Like every time something pops into their mind, they're like, oop, got to hop out and use the car for this. And for me, it's about once every two weeks to a month that I'll actually fire up one of these vehicles because I've optimized everything already. Like I chose a place to live that's near the things that I like to do like all my friends and grocery stores and school and library and this stuff. And I wouldn't have it any other way. I'm not interested in living somewhere that's so far away from this stuff that I have to use a car. I'm not like denying myself of the pleasure of car transportation. I'm just using a bike because that's the most efficient way to do it in this current life, which I had to design. It's really weird. It's like systems-based. You set stuff up automatically so it doesn't require willpower to do the right thing. Home energy use is another thing I'm kind of interested in. So I have a house that costs like less than 20 bucks a month to run at this point, you know, with electricity and heat combined. Well, maybe 30 depending on the season. But yeah, just a bunch of little things are optimized so that I don't have to think about them. And groceries... Maybe we go out to dinner less often than most people, especially high wealth people. But that's mostly because we like cooking and because my son hates restaurants. So that's kind of a frugal by default situation. Maybe we could use some Ian examples to see in what way does he qualify as mustache? <laughs> now I'm nervous. What I was going to ask you as a follow-up to that is you're cutting consumption to optimize for something. What is it that you're optimizing for? And the only thing that really makes sense to optimize for is your own happiness because that's kind of the point of a human life, in my opinion, is just have like a happy, satisfying life. So if you look into these details of what really makes humans happy, it is having great, warm relationships with other people where you can be giving and have time to spend with them. So in order to make that happen, first thing I did was getting rid of a job in 2005 so that I would have time. This is when I was going to have my son be born. 
And I knew that it was going to be a hardcore competition between working in this pretty high up type of career of being a software engineer versus taking care of a baby and making bottles and changing diapers. So I optimized the money in order to be able to throw out the job in order to be able to be as dedicated a dad as I wanted to be and the husband as well. And that, of course, frees up a lot of time for your friends and being in the community and helping people with their projects around town. So you get a happier life by getting rid of your job in this case. How much uh, money does one need to have to get rid of their job? Oh, well, that's a great question. It's really easy, too. You just need about 25 times your annual spending. That has to be thrown into something that generates investment returns, either index funds in like the world and U.S. stock markets. Or if you can handle it, some rental houses or apartment buildings or whatever will typically give you even higher cash flow in exchange for potentially a little bit more work. So 25 times, most people don't even know what they spend. They just know they spend all their money. But that's another thing I later started doing after I had the blog is we actually add up our annual spending for my family. It ends up being about 25 grand per year, 25,000 US. The only cheating involved there is that we don't have any house-related payments because we have a mortgage-free house and in an area where the property taxes aren't too high. So we're spending about $2,000 a month on stuff like groceries and whenever we want to travel, we do cars, car insurance, all the fun stuff. Most of it goes to fun. Can you talk about how you got to that 25x number? Not in terms of the philosophy, but how you actually save that much money. I think people have a hard time just saving money. Yeah, well, you have to waste less money. So you have to take everything where the money is leaking out. And I really target higher income people, but this is even more important if you have a lower income because you're living that much closer to the edge. But you take your big three, like housing, food and transportation and figure out why you're spending so much on those things and find ways to cut down. So the obvious stuff is like if you're a young person, like a 20 something, you don't go out to restaurants every night of the week and you bring your lunch to work. That change alone, bringing your lunch to work instead of driving out to a place with your coworkers, I don't know, it's $50,000 or more per decade in wealth difference. And people make a lot of little choices like that. Like some people have cable TV for 150 bucks a month with all kinds of like super nonsense channels on there. You don't have time to be watching TV. Like go out and lift some weights and walk at night and read books. Like how could you possibly have time to watch TV? There's so many better things to do. So there's $150 a month right there, tens of thousands of dollars. If you add up a bunch of little things like that, pretty quickly you get to the point where you go from zero wealth to $600,000 in investments over a you know one to two decade period. Just depends on your income. And that's enough. If you take $600,000 of investments, multiply that by 4%, which is equivalent to this 25 times thing I said earlier, you can spend about 24000 a year forever and never run out of money, plus or minus. You know, there's a little bit of debate at the edges, but that's the core number to remember. So earn a lot and don't spend a lot and ride your bike instead of driving a car to work and don't have like a big bullshit kind of car. Never borrow money for a car because that's 90% of cars in the US are bought on credit. So already 90% of the people are just like shooting themselves all over the face and body with a machine gun financially. It immediately explains like why nobody has any money. Like people are amazed. How could you retire? I'm like, you have borrowed money for a car. Like number one, turn off the machine gun that's pointed at your face. It's just so ridiculous, the financial habits people have. Maybe a harder question than Pete is not how do you save the money, but how do you train yourself to be happy in the experiences of lifting weights and not watching television? Yeah, well, you just try it because the feedback is quite quick. Television is a depressing medium. So as soon as you turn it off, you're going to notice your days are going better. You're sleeping better at night. You're more sociable with people the next day at work. Similarly, like if you go out for a walk at lunch instead of driving to a restaurant at lunch, you know, and then you 
you eat your lunch outside at work or something like that. And bring some friends too, like make things sociable. In terms of friends though, I mean, we talk about this a lot with entrepreneurship and what it takes to become an entrepreneur. The kind of shift that you're talking about, not watching television programs, that means that you don't get to talk with your friends about the television programs. That means that you're probably going to lose a lot of your friends to this new lifestyle. Has that been your experience? You're going to lose your most boring friends, and that makes room for your more interesting and intelligent potential people. And those are the ones that you want to be with as an entrepreneur. Like entrepreneurs don't follow the crowd. What kind of entrepreneur spends their evenings watching TV? Like, you know, the the more interesting ones are working on their business or researching stuff or out meeting interesting people. They're going on multi-day mountain bike trips with other company founders and discussing ideas and they're inventing stuff. There is no loss. You can set the rules too. Being a leader is a great thing in terms of attracting other entrepreneurial people. So if you say, guess what? This is Ian's Lunch Walk Club. I'm starting a club of people who don't drive out to lunch and we go for like a strenuous walk or bike ride at lunch instead. Suddenly everybody is following you and doing this stuff with you and it grows and then you've already got a little movement and then you've got the seed of your future network of cool people. So setting the rules instead of following them, a lot of people are afraid to do that, but it really is a great start to a happier life. I'm curious as to where people resist the most when you give them these ideas. I think I get a lot of feedback where people say, I like the ideas, but I just couldn't be as hardcore as you. So we just take baby steps. I think that's already sort of self-limiting because I am in no way hardcore. Like I live in this super, super nice house that looks like design magazine place, like where my backyard is a park and it's in the center of this beautiful city and I do whatever I want. So people should think they are currently like living over the top, absolute super Saudi Arabian prince lifestyle and then say, I'm not trying to become hardcore, I'm trying to become less ridiculous. And you just start cutting off some of your... Just change the perspective. Another thing is we are trained as consumers to seek out convenience and comfort and think of any kind of hardship as something to be avoided. And that's a great concept to flip on its head. Instead, you should think, how can I make my day more difficult and how can I eliminate convenience whenever possible? And how can I push just to the edge of discomfort? Like always stay a little bit hungry, always do things that are a little bit more difficult. Like if you have an office and you're on the 50th floor, of course you take the stairs. Like why would you take the elevator, just only 50 floors? Like people hike up a hundred times that high on a multi-day hike. And if you can't do that, just push it to 25 floors. So go for the maximum instead of the default. Everyone goes for the minimum right now, minimum effort. You're still at this level that you're keeping your expenses at 25,000 a year. How do you resist like that kind of splash purchase or trip somewhere that you can afford? Is it part of this principle of not just giving yourself everything you want all the time? Yeah, I think it's a little different when you can afford it and when you can't. Because first of all, most people cannot afford things and they think they can, right? They think, oh, if I can meet the monthly payments, then I can afford it. Obviously, that's not true. And then next level is if I have the cash for it, I can afford it. And I would say that's not true. If you still have to work for that cash, then you're not independent. So what's the point of buying it yet? Unless it's something really critical, like a tool for the good life. But the real answer to your question is, is it really going to make you happier on a prolonged lifetime basis in order to answer that like a ten thousand dollar bike does that bike allow you to bond more closely with people and be a more generous person because those are the only things that actually make you any happier so you think about that and is that true well chances are it's not It might be true in really rare cases, like if you are a Tour de France racer and if you win, that allows you to have like a super giant charity power that allows you to bond with people around the world. Then, yeah, the $10,000 bike is a tool for that goal, which actually could make you have a better life. But 
just buying yourself toys is pretty much proven not to make yourself any happier. So maybe the easy way to think about it is, is it a tool or is it a toy? And then you use that to decide if you want to buy something. I want to go back to this question of convenience, how you spend your time. And I think, especially as Americans, like you were saying, we're kind of pre-programmed to pay for convenience, but it does and it can get out of control. So how do you strike that balance between having time for your family and your friends and then also you know, paying for some level of convenience? There's some kind of convenience that just saves you from burning time. Like, for example, I hired an accountant this year to run my business taxes because in order to do the job as well as he did, I would have to spend many, many hours to do it. But it saves more money than it costs. So that's kind of a worthwhile convenience to purchase. On the other hand, some people say, well, I'm going to hire a housekeeper because I need the convenience of not having to spend all this time cleaning my house. And that's more of a slippery slope because... Number one, you don't have to have your house spick and span like every single week, every single molecule of dust gone. And number two, it can mask the effects that you should be seeing. Like maybe you need a smaller house to begin with, or maybe you need to spend more time at home and not be away all the time. And certain things have synergistic effects. For example, hiring out the gardening or something like that. Well, if you like gardening, you should do it because it's good for you. If you don't like gardening, maybe you shouldn't have gardens. You should design your lifestyle so you don't have all this passive stuff that's like just there that other people have to maintain because it can extend on to like pool boys and yacht staff and people maintaining all your other houses in other countries that you don't have time to visit. Tell me about it. I wrote an article that's called You Can't Cure Obesity with Bigger Pants. And it's kind of this idea is if you have too much going on and you feel like you need help and hiring people to do stuff, the solution is probably not hiring those people. It's to pare back your life to become simpler because the most content human lifestyle, I think, is one that's simple and you're a wholly rounded person. You can do everything. You hunt and you're getting your food and caring for your family and taking care of your dwelling. I mean, that's kind of a complete lifestyle. And that's the extreme end of it. You don't have to do it that much. But you should just think of that as an ideal and you realize your life doesn't have to be so complicated that you have to hire staff to do your work for you. One of the things that was brought up in the New Yorker article, he was trying to paint you as somebody that was depriving your child of some kind of experience, I think. Right. With the magic cards. And we live in an amazing time, right? Like you can fly across the world for virtually nothing and experience these amazing countries. Do you find yourself depriving yourselves of those kinds of opportunities because you're interested in having money in the bank? Oh, well, definitely not for money because we're kind of privileged in the sense of we've always found it very easy to make money. So we could do anything we want. The only reason we don't constantly travel is because we enjoy staying close to family and friends. When we do travel, it's typically back to Canada where a lot of our parents and family are. The exotic travel, well, my son doesn't adapt too well to super stressful environments right now. So that's why we're not, we haven't done any Asia type travel. We do simple things like spent a winter in Hawaii a couple of years ago. We just got back from a nice living on an island in Florida with no cars type of thing with some friends. So nothing has to do with money. It's more of a trade-off of time and the activities you have to forfeit in order to be away. My life is pretty different than a single guy's life would be. You know, it's very family focused. So if I was Mr. Money Mustache Single Edition, you'd probably see me describing a lot of different stuff. I might even spend more, but it really just depends on your personal preferences for what to do with your days. I like being in one place and being engaged with the people who live around me. So I don't think I'd ever be a super compulsive traveler. Can you tell us a little bit about how the philosophy of being a mustachian might change for somebody that has a career versus somebody that is an entrepreneur? Is there any difference? Yeah, I think it would affect how you run your business. 
So I was kind of a career guy with just a single one job at a time. I switched between jobs a few times, but in general, I would try to do the best I could do at work and then try to stay busy outside of work being productive and other stuff. So my entrepreneurship was outside of the office. You know, I was building houses, taking care of stuff and optimizing my money. But if you're purely working for yourself, you still do that. You still figure out ways to make the best of your personal life outside of work. But you have this option to run the business in a different way, too, because there's no longer such a need to focus on profit above all else, because you know you're going to be financially independent much sooner than other people in your business. You're not going to be like 55 years old if you start young and still depending on that business for money. And that means you can run it for whatever you feel you should be doing with that business. Like you don't have to squeeze more money out of the customers if you're already making enough. I mean, even if you use my little example of how I run the Mr. Money Mustache blog, it's kind of turned into this thing that makes money, even though I didn't expect it to. But because I'm not depending on the money from it, it really helps me to have a lot more fun. People say like, oh, yeah, hey, we have this advertising company and we can just you can make tens of thousands extra per month if you just put these super spammy ads in your site. And it feels really great to be able to say no to that. At the same time, like just for example, I I just had to hire a lawyer this week because some companies, these spammy financial companies are trying to suppress the speech, the reviews that my forum users are giving of these products. And so a normal company would just take that stuff down because it's the simplest way you could save money by doing that. But instead, I have the privilege of using the blog's money to hire lawyers to fight these companies and say, fuck you, like you guys are doing this completely unethical thing just to try to suppress negative reviews about you because I have no other use for the money. Like, I feel I can actually do that. And I don't have to check with a board of directors like, oh, can we do this? Would it be profitable from public relations perspective? You know, it's just like, fuck you. It's just fuck you money. In general, that usually pays off, but you don't have to run the numbers. You can just do what you feel is right. What's some of these bullshit things that that financial companies are doing? Well, I'm glad you ask because now we can publicize it more so there's this whole area i didn't know about before i had a bigger website and it's called reputation management so what these companies do is they search or they have their employees search for their own name and if they see a negative review on themselves they look up the owner of that website and then start sending legal threats to that owner of the website they're like hey you got to take this stuff down this is false and defamatory statements they always use those words and it's tortuous interference that's another legal term like from tort law and they really try to scare you and then they send you subpoenas where they're like please reveal the ip address and the usernames of the people who wrote this stuff and like if you write stuff yourself that's even more grounds for threatening and then 99% of the time i would guess the bloggers cave in because they don't have the money for a lawyer and they're like oh well all i have to do is delete this stuff and it goes away well thank god i'll just do that so then sure enough that drops out of the google search results and the company has a squeaky clean image again and if they're aggressive enough at this they can maintain a pure negativity free thing on themselves so my strategy is the opposite is like if anybody does that to me and now there have been three companies have done this i may give it as much publicity as i can and make a permanent page about it that of course gets lodged at number one or number three in google search and then the company has like an even worse reputation. I really think this whole practice needs to be stopped. Are there financial companies that are offering services to consumers that you feel like are fraudulent that you have uncovered? I don't do a lot of digging in that area myself. They're basically high fee financial management. Sometimes it's dressed up as life insurance or sometimes it's just dressed up as like financial advisor. I don't think they're fraudulent in general. I think it's just a way for people to make money managing other people's money, which according to my philosophy is unnecessary because you can just put your money into index funds or like a super low fee management thing like Betterment, 
personal capital, wealth front, all these new robo-advisors where you're paying a fraction of a percent at the most instead of some of these funds will have like 5% front-loading fees or ongoing super high fees. There's not too many that are super fraudulent like the Bernie Madoff scandal, but there's a lot of bad deals out there in money management and a lot of people who get sucked into them and probably lose about a quarter to a half of the potential money they would have earned with just plain passive investment. Ian and I just sold a business of ours. And so it was kind of like a life-changing moment. If we walked into your office and you know asked for advice on how to proceed from there, I'd be curious about how you'd advise us. It's sort of like a retirement payout, but how do we make it work for us? Did this actually happen or is this a hypothetical question? It actually happened. And we're actually in your okay. office. Okay, right? <laughs> cool. Yeah, well, it, I think, and this is kind of how I feel too, right? Because I stumbled into extra money after retiring too. I think the key is don't change anything that you like. If you enjoy spending time with friends, just use the money to do more. And maybe you can be a bit more generous with them. Like, hey, guys, I know you can't always afford to take vacation. So I rented a house and you guys can come and visit me there and nobody has to pay anything. So that's one way to use your extra money. Of course, being more generous with it in a charitable sense is a great thing to look into if you have a permanent surplus. But the biggest thing to do is just make sure you're not doing work that you don't believe in and don't keep chasing more money as a way of keeping score. Like, okay, I got my first $5 million, but imagine how prestigious I would be if I had $50 million. Or these guys in the Forbes 400, they have like billions of dollars. I got to keep going. So just shut that whole part off. Just turn the whole money part off. And I have this rule for myself that helps to avoid getting too giddy when there's extra money around. And it is, if you're deciding what work to do, only do work that you would do for free. And if you're deciding to buy something, pretend that the price is $0, but make sure you have other values coming into play too. Like, do I actually want to create this much pollution by buying this thing? And is there a better use for this money where I can create more happiness? And that helps prevent you from just ending up with a marina full of yachts and stuff. But in general, more money won't make you any more happy because you already probably had your needs covered, but it can help give you the mental fortitude to not keep working on stuff that's a waste of your time. Can you give us a two-minute review of what your overall approach is in terms of investing in the market? Yeah, it's just index funds. And you can keep it as simple as you want. Just a single Vanguard index fund is the very simplest thing you could do, which would be buying the VTI exchange-traded fund. And that just gives you the entire U.S. stock market. Just keep buying that with all your spare money and you're set for life. You can do a little better, very small amount better if you mix VTI and VXUS. That's another Vanguard fund. And then keep them balanced with uh, annual rebalancing 50-50. Or if you're not interested in this stuff and if it's already starting to sound like a bit of voodoo, then you just go to get a Betterment account, which I really don't want to sound like an advertisement for the company. They're not paying me to say this, but it's just super smart people who know how to invest money and charge a ridiculously low fee to do that. I've realized most people are kind of afraid of investing. So just do one of those three things and then set it and forget it. Just keep pouring your money in as you earn it. Don't get scared by market fluctuations or hot stock tips or anything like that. I am that, Pete. I'm talked about it so much, but I'm scared. So let's say I have $100,000 sitting in a savings account. What should I do with that money? Throw it into index funds. Like just to use my example, because you're, you want to keep it really simple, you've obviously done something pretty fearful, which is keeping money in a checking account. So go to Betterment, transfer almost all that money, like leave yourself 10 grand or something. Then you'll start getting more comfortable automatically as time goes on. And then you'll start putting more and more money in that account as you keep earning it. And it'll generate dividends and it can automatically give you payouts later on if you need an ongoing stream from your investments. It'll just manage it for you and give you your grocery money and take care of you for life. 
You said that um, millionaire is made 10 bucks at a time. I like this article. I'm curious, like, have you seen this working in your community? I think on the other side of the aisle, there are people who say it's not worth saving 10 bucks at a time because something's going to come up or that's not how people get wealthy. So what have you seen in terms of the people that have seen results around you? In general, that is still the way it works. If you're working like a single or double income family and you're trying to become financially independent off of a couple of finite paychecks, the only way you're going to do that is by cutting down your spending, which is mostly unconscious kind of habitual spending and having that go into investments, which suddenly start to multiply exponentially. Just a few 5 to $10 items will get added to the grocery counter on the way home, or maybe they'll drive out, like something pops into their head, like, oh, it would be nice to have some curtains for these windows. I'm going to drive to Ikea. And suddenly they're spending four hours on Saturday driving around, shopping for curtains and stuff. And you just have to shut all of your consumption just down and think, is there another way to solve this problem? I don't need this product right now. Is there a way I can delay this project or live without it or innovate something in my own ingenuity that will meet this need? And so suddenly these $10 at a time and like this stuff might go to coffee or it might go to lunches or it might go to extra gas or tires or maintenance in your car. It can just cut right down. Suddenly like 75% of your spending can be gone just by becoming conscious of the $10 decisions. And that's what I always did sort of automatically because that's how I was wired as a kid. But when I see other people and I teach them this and they start doing it, they realize, hey, this is actually kind of fun. And uh, suddenly I have like $5,000 left over at the end of each month when before I used to have zero. It becomes like a game, like how much you reverse the pleasure center, I guess. Like for me, it was so hard. Like I was not wired. I'm not wired like this. I am the curtains guy. I think I did that last weekend. And what worked (laughs) for me was paying myself cash with every paycheck and then putting the rest of my savings account. And then I only had that money for two weeks. I think some people call it like the envelope system. Have you heard of that? Yep, that's true. It's definitely better than nothing. The only hitch with the envelope system is it gives you permission to like, oh yeah, this is my spending money. I can let this go. And when it's gone, it's gone. I like to train people even more efficiency where you feel a great win every time you don't buy something. I call it the cha-ching instinct. So you're like cha-ching every time you make a decision that lets you keep money instead of losing it, then you're winning. And then you train yourself to feel pain when the money goes missing. Instead, you're like, oh shit, I kind of lost the game today. I spent seven bucks at the bar but the next day you had your friends over and everyone just had a few beers in the park and you spent like four dollars on beer and you're like wow that's awesome i saved 66 dollars compared to doing the same thing at the bar the cha-ching instinct is one good way to reverse the psychology of spending but if you can't do that then the envelope system is certainly a reasonable start so drinking in the park is definitely a good thing it sounds like so i'm on track basically. That was my life at 18. That's my life now at 34 as well. Yeah, exactly. An example of one of the things that I've started spending more on is when I was 18 years old or whatever, and I wanted to have some kind of partying that involved alcohol, it would definitely be outside of establishments because it was just way too expensive for me at the time. And now I don't think twice if someone's going to a bar, I'm like, yeah, of course I can afford that. There's no difference in the environmental impact between drinking four beers in my backyard or the park adjoining my backyard versus at the restaurant or not much different. So I let myself be sloppy in that way. But that's because money doesn't matter. If you have another use for money, like you have a car that's not even paid off or a house that's not paid off or kids that need your support, then why would you be pissing that away at like $6 a drink in a bar? That's not going to make you happier. That's just going to add monetary stress to your life. How much do you think a permanent homestead plays into your kind of strategy? 
you paid for your home in cash, I presume. And then now it's kind of become this fixture where a lot of things happen in your life, including your family. Is it a key to keeping expenses low? Well, it just depends on your stage of your life and what you enjoy yourself. I'm a homebody myself. I love building stuff around the house and having people over, having movie nights here in the house. Other people love to be mobile, so it would be cheaper for me to sell this house and just put the money into investments and then just live in Airbnbs and travel the world and stuff like that. So it's not really a money-saving thing, but it's really a happiness thing. Like having a home and a permanent place is an extremely happy thing for me, probably for a lot of people, but definitely not everybody. I'm, there's a lot of personality types out there, and mine isn't really the most common one. I'm a weirdo in, in a lot of ways. Pete, in terms of investments, you know, a lot of things worked the previous generation that might not work in the future. Do you have some examples of those? I didn't do anything that would not work in the future myself, but some people, for example, one of my friends happened to buy a ton of Apple stock because he didn't know anything about investing. And he's like, yeah, Apple, I like iPhones. I'm just going to start buying stock. And then he did. And with a lot, like I think he bought hundreds of thousands of dollars with it over a few years in the mid 2000s or something or just the right time. And then it multiplied by a factor of many. So he got, I think, millions of dollars out of what would have normally, with index fund investing, just been a few hundred thousand of extra profits. You don't need luck to get continuous, awesome stock market returns, which is what the stock market just generally provides from one generation to the next. But you do need luck to get lucky with like tenfold stock price increases. In real estate, for example, if you bought a house in San Francisco in the year 2000, You'd be sitting on very high gains here 16 years later, and you can't depend on that. It's up to you. In general, you should count on just average performance instead of counting on super amazing speculative gains in any type of asset class, whether it's houses or stocks or anything else you might buy. One of the things that came across to me when I was, I think more so when I was reading your profile as opposed to reading your blog, is that you seem to be really focused on your time and you kind of live this like flaneur type of lifestyle or that's how he painted it. Like you chill out, you walk around, smoke some pot. By the way, was the pot stuff, like you're totally comfortable talking about that? (laughs) Yeah, that was another example of the writer painted himself out of the picture. Like really he said, hey, pot's legal in Colorado. Can we check it out? And I was like, yeah, there's a store right down the street from me. So we walked down together and then like we each bought some. Whereas in the story he wrote like, Aiden, he needed a refill for his his health (laughs) stick. So he went down and bought some. (laughs) Right, like you have a pet name for it too. That was my favorite part. Yeah, I call it the health stick. I do like marijuana, but I use it in the same way that I use like beer and wine, which is like less than maybe a couple of times a week. I'll take a tiny amount of wine or a tiny amount of marijuana if there's people over or something like that. So it's not like a regular thing that I'm always high on or anything. It's just a recreational substance. You made the implication that you were underselling it. Underselling it? He was like, Yeah, this guy says he only goes down here once every six months. Oh, yeah. That's an interesting way to read it, too. I thought he was writing it as a way that I was really trying to optimize the money. Like, it costs him $30, and he's calculated that that lasts him six months and blah, blah, blah. I think he put that part in the story. It was pretty irrelevant. I think it was just like maybe he thought that people in New York State would find it novel that people use marijuana in Colorado and stuff. But yeah, it really isn't a big relevant thing. It's sort of like saying that I like coconut oil in my coffee, which I do, and then making a big part of the story about that. And, you know, it's just like something that's part of my diet, I guess. There is this image that resonated with me, though. It seems like you've always been really focused on your time. Like the idea that someone else was going to tell you where to be and what to do was more offensive to you than the average person. 
I would kind of disagree with that too. Yeah. I really loved having jobs when I did have them and I thought it was quite privileged. I'm like, wow, I get to swipe a card and go into this super multi-million dollar air conditioned building and there's all these smart people there and they actually pay me for that. And it was always quite flexible. Like you could work from home or you could call in sick or you could take paid time off. So I'm not really anti other people's time. It just became logically the next step when I didn't need to do that anymore. Then of course, why would I keep doing it? So it's kind of a gentle shift rather than a hardcore rebelling against like the man. And at the time, were you thinking about the 4% principle? Was that what was like in your mind? Or was it having kids? Or what was the motivating factor that gave you the discipline over the course of that decade to put aside the money? Yeah, it was approximately, I didn't really know the 4% rule by that name. But my wife and I just had this goal where we thought, yeah, if we have $600,000 invested plus a paid off house, then that's probably enough to live off forever. You know, I knew about stock market returns and I had read a lot of books on the subject. So I had a fairly good feeling. But the biggest thing was, this is enough money. Let's have a kid. And we aren't going to want these jobs if we have a baby that's keeping us up at night and we want to be at home and going for walks with him on sunny days and everything. So really parenting and the goal of being able to be devoted parents was what made us quit our jobs at the time. So for you, it sounds like to your own admission, you didn't mind going to that job. But I think a lot of people do mind going to the job. And then the strategy might seem a little bit like life deferment. So it's like I get to live this great life after I put in my 10 years because I've saved enough. So how do those people deal with those 10 years if they don't like it? Right. Well, that sounds like even more reason to become efficient with your money so you're not prolonging your sentence. But at the same time, you should certainly start having more fun at work. I mean, people are much too hesitant to switch jobs, I find. And they're often too hesitant to switch geographies. Moving is really good for you. So if you're in Washington, D.C. as a lawyer and the culture sucks, like you should absolutely move to like Santa Fe, New Mexico and do something different and still keep your lawyer skills, but just have a new life and a new community. And then suddenly the remainder of your 10 years can be quite fun. So never settle for a sucky situation. You got to fight immediately. And the best way to fight is with people skills, like just start having more fun, start coming up with ideas and watch how quickly people follow your ideas. And suddenly you're not a little slave in the system. You're actually in control of your own situation. Seems highly strategic too, because it's very easy to get yourself into a pattern where you feel like you deserve to consume things like fancy vacations, for example, because you're responding to the feelings that you're exposing yourself to every week. Like, what am I doing here? And so it's like, Tahiti yeah. it is, or whatever. Right, yeah. Consumption as an escape from work is a really bad thing to get into habit of doing. You really have to watch for that. That's sort of like the old high school like heavy drinker thing. I was never able to do this myself, but people who are drinking all weekend, they get drunk and they wake up the next morning, everyone's still together. And they're like, oh, I got to drink off my hangover. And they just start chugging it again, like at breakfast time. That's what it's like if you're spending money to avoid the pain of your job, because it's perpetuating the need to have that job. And things are just going to get worse and worse, just like a hangover. Consumption as an escape from work is a really bad thing to get into the habit of doing. It's a quote from our guest today, Mr. Money Mustache. I really enjoyed speaking with him. Ian, have you ever found yourself consuming as an escape? Yeah, retail therapy, man. You don't remember when we both had jobs and we'd like go to Nordstrom Rack on like Friday afternoon? <laughs> I do remember. Like, yeah, we're going to get some clothes. We're going to the bar this weekend. It's like how to spend money to make yourself feel good about going to that job. 
there was a little bit of a mustachian move in our relationship. I remember when we found out about entrepreneurship, we would do the math on those weekends. We would go to the club and we would wear our nice outfits and stuff. I mean, I can totally believe that we did that stuff. We definitely did that. It was awful. We made so little money at the time, net profit, because it was so expensive to live in the city as a young person. And then to drive, to commute, to have a car, all these things were expensive. And then we had the nerve or really the need to go out and to buy things. And I think it made us feel just free for a little bit. But when you start doing the mustachian math, you tell yourself, well, I just worked like two and a half days at the office in order to buy this jacket. And that doesn't feel very free. And it doesn't feel like I have the power that I might have felt when I woke up in the morning and drove out to Nordstrom Rack thinking I was going to have a good day. I think you're absolutely right to say that you just felt like you were making so little money. It didn't matter if you spent you know, the little profit that you did have. It's like, well, what am I going to do? Save $3,000 a year? Where is that going to get me in five years? And that was kind of the thinking. This thinking can also, though, translate into your business because there's so many business coaches that are encouraging you to invest and all these sorts of ideas. And I think we've both seen entrepreneurs that they don't solve that fundamental consumption engine at the core of their business and they just trying to keep chucking revenue at it. Yeah, I was talking actually with a friend the other day about this in, in his business and it's interesting. I think we've probably made this mistake in our businesses in the past too, which is like if you don't have like a very solid trajectory and a very solid way to say like I'm going to put X in and I expect to get X out. And I think this happens a lot like in the first like three years of your business because you're just like, well, I'm going to chuck everything at my business because I want this to be as big as possible. But I think on like year five through seven, you kind of look back and you say like, well, that doesn't always work that way. You need to put some aside right. to A, pay yourself in, in case this doesn't work out. And it's not always the best investment either. Well, and that's the thing. I think what Mr. Money Mustache is asking people to do in part with their careers is to step back and look at it as a system. And what are the results of the system over time? And you can do the same with your business. The alternate way to think is like to kind of hope for an event, like a salvation moment. You know, I used to fantasize about what it would be if I like had a windshed salary moment or a hit the lottery or something like that. I think a lot of people do that. And you can do the same in your business, right? Like I'm just going to have like all these clients happening, but I'm going to get the one big client one day. That's going to change everything. It's interesting that lottery mentality. You know, I think one of the things that I've done over the last 10 years is not even allowed myself to think about those moments. I'm not allowed to fantasize about those moments, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. It's interesting. And what do we used to say back in the days is like every moment that we thought was going to be like a huge game change in our business just turned out to be Wednesday. <laughs> Another day, like any other full of challenges, you know, just because the big client hired your firm doesn't mean that they're just going to start dumping money into your bank account. Sometimes the biggest clients are the hardest and the most expensive to serve. And you're going to have the most to learn. I enjoy thinking about it as a process. And for sure, there are certain ways of going about things that make it so that you're more likely to earn back your time and your freedom, which is the core of all this. And that's why I love Mr. Money Mustache's work. We'd love to hear your thoughts on his investment strategies, on his financial strategies, on his life philosophies. This one will be posted at tropicalmba.com slash MMM. Let's play the music. And we'll probably cut off the music a little bit early on this one. We have a little bit of an excerpt from this interview. If you really like Mr. Money Mustache, a little bit more info after the tag music. Thanks for joining us, Ian. We'll be back next Thursday morning. See you then. Hey, thanks for listening to the Tropical MBA podcast. You can go to tropicalmba.com, get access to hundreds of back episodes and all kinds of other goodies. Load up your iPod. That is the cheapest way to fly business class 
on your next international flight. We will see you next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. Hey, boss man, I just wanted to jump on at the end here for some extra credit. At the beginning and end of a lot of our conversations with these people we're so lucky to talk to, we kind of get windy and talk about other things. And Pete mentioned that he hosted events or that his community organized events. And I thought it would be cool if we just rolled a minute or two of that part of the conversation in case anybody's interested in hearing what the Mustachians are up to. Yeah, Pete's created this amazing community. And I think it's always great to talk to other community organizers about how these things work. You know, he's got a very active forum. He's got member organized events all across the world. And so always interesting to hear how other people do it. Yeah, there's like an annual one in Ecuador. And these are all organized by other people because I'm not actually organized enough myself. So I get to go to Ecuador once a year. And there's also one called Camp Mustache that happens in the Seattle region that's in coming up in May. Yeah, I feel quite lucky. It's like super, super fun vacations. What happens at the events? Well, a bunch of cool people show up and just talk. And especially at Camp Mustache, there's sort of like a, everybody's free to give mini presentations on their areas of expertise if you want, and people can gather and do this stuff. But, you know, mostly it just ends up being really neat conversations. And these groups of people are way more compatible than you'd ever guess. It's because it's a bit of a filter to get in there. Like, first of all, you have to find out about it from the Mr. Money Mustache blog. So it's kind of a random, it's kind of an interesting, rare group of people already, like people who have this maybe countercultural slash engineering mindset. But then you also have to be pretty extroverted to throw yourself into a situation like that with strangers. So that's filter number two. And then number three, especially the Ecuador one, is it's kind of hard to do and you have to be a little bit crazy to go. So then you end up with adventurous. And to be honest, like they're just really smart people, I think. So people just go crazy and just talk all day and like in these really animated, fun conversations that they don't even notice they're having. And then suddenly people are like, come to lunch. We've made some fancy lunch for you. And you're like, wow, I feel like I just ate breakfast. So it's just a meeting of minds, I think, like of people who normally can't find similar people to talk to. Well, I'm at the end of my questions list. What are you doing right now? Are you guys still in another country? Ian lives in Texas and he's evaluating homes to buy. So that was some relevant questions. I live in Barcelona and I rent an apartment here. So it's neither tropical nor MBA. And I'm looking at your logo a little bit differently. Yeah, we started in Asia. So we were manufacturing products in China. And that was kind of our core business. And we sold e-commerce products. Valet parking equipment, you know, the black box outside of the restaurant. Oh, yeah. We were the number one manufacturer of those in the U.S., that and portable bars. And we just recently sold that company. But getting ramped up and running that company, a big part of our lives still is traveling. And so we spent a lot of time in Asia. So when we developed that brand, that's where we were. Yeah. And then the Tropical MBA podcast and website and everything has become a separate thing, right? Like a whole enterprise in its own, I assume. Yeah, it sounds similar to what you're up to. We have for listeners that really love the show and that they have businesses, they can join a private membership. And we have two events a year, one in Bangkok and one in Barcelona, as well as like monthly meetups. People just like get together for coffee or beer. Similar thing, member hosted. We don't organize them. We just kind of facilitate them. Yeah, well, congratulations. I mean, I think that's a great key. And this would apply to your listeners as well, which is you need to have something to do. So if you're going to quit your job or retire from your current entrepreneur situation, 
you're not going to be happier. You're going to be much less happier if you just plan to sit around and do nothing. So I think every creative person needs to create and they need to be challenged. So and the good news is that's probably going to make you money as well. You guys are doing that even in this post normal business life, you know, selling your current business. You're just on to the next thing. It's just that you can do it entirely on your own terms now, which I think is great.